Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, co-editor-in-chief of Variety. Today, my guest is Arye Borkoff, founder and CEO of Lion Tree. Borkoff is the banker to the media elite. He's almost always in the middle of the action on big mergers and acquisitions. Investors of the caliber of John Malone and Sherry Redstone have him on speed dial. In our conversation, Borkoff talks about the profound effects of the pandemic and how it will shape the media and entertainment ecosystem for years to come. He gives his insights into the great direct-to-consumer realignment underway for traditional Hollywood giants. And he explains why his team at Lion Tree is closely watching the video gaming world. Normally, people pay a lot of money for a half hour with Arya Borkoff. So consider this episode a perk and a good reason to listen to Strictly Business all year long. Arya Borkoff, founder and CEO of Lion Tree, the elite media investment banking and advisory firm. Thank you so much for taking time out to join us. Thanks, Cynthia, for having me. As we look to kick off the new year, what do you see? What is the most significant things that you see on the horizon for media companies to deal with? And that is a loaded question because there are about 25,000 things that they have to deal with. But what do you think for the media giants that you work with and, and study, what do you think are the biggest issues that are going to need to be addressed in 2021? Well, obviously a great uh, open-ended question to start, but it's, uh, like you said, it is uh, the question that the media companies grapple with every day. I always uh, think about public companies and CEOs of public companies having to uh, assess what their shareholders are going to be interested in uh, and be demanding of them, um, not only at the moment, but in the future, and uh, and have to predict that um, and then obviously drive the company risk appetite and investment horizons towards that shareholder base. Media company strategies and uh, company executives have to do the same thing for their consumers. And so the answer to your question is, what does the consumer look like in the future by the end of 21? So we're sitting here beginning the year. What does the consumer appetite look like at the end of the year? And how do you position your company for that? And so it very clearly has a lot to do with video streaming. Right. <laughs> and we've been, we've been very much binging of you know, video content and the creative um, explosion of everything at the, you know, Disney Plus and HBO Max and Apple TV and Discovery Plus and Amazon Prime and, and everything around the, uh, the world that we're consuming all the time. But we've also been uh, consuming a lot more audio content uh, like this, right? And audio has been, in our view, uh, you know, growing a lot faster than even video. And I think we'll continue to do so. And then there's gaming. Um, and not, not just video games as an activity, but video games as a metaverse, as a, as, a, as a new universe. So is Fortnite the new internet? And we saw in the last year, Travis Scott premiere a concert within the Fortnite ecosystem, maybe we'll start seeing movie premieres within the internet of the, within the video gaming ecosystem or other concerts or other, you know, activities that are more virtual. If you actually notice mm-hmm. towards the end of last year with the pandemic, a lot of advertisements on television were, um, were animated or virtual. Uh-huh. So you, you may not even really notice the difference of over time that, because of production issues around the pandemic, uh, 
you didn't really have chance a chance to see um, the video in person commercials being filmed or produced. So those were replaced by you know CGI or animated commercials, and most people didn't even notice it, but they were really appealing still. So that is a new way of doing things, and it happened right before your eyes. And so I think it's really about predicting the future, consuming patterns of the uh, of the uh, of all of us. And I think positioning for that. And I think savings has picked up a lot during this pandemic in 2020 because we've all saved a lot of money and companies have saved a lot of money and we haven't traveled and we're waiting to consume it inside the home and outside the home. And that will have to be balanced with all of our leisure activities. That that could be one silver lining because, I, the, you know, the, the the general statistics are pretty scary about how little Americans actually, you know, actually put in the bank. So so that that could, you know, that there could definitely be some silver linings there. Do you think that, um, let me ask, in terms of, in terms of M&A, do you think there's been, there has been a lot of activity, but there's also been a feeling that there is a, there's a great roll-up waiting to happen with some smaller companies, whether they're active in cable or active in content. Do you think that the pandemic conditions have made another wave of media M&A more likely or less likely in this coming, say, 12 to 24 months? I wouldn't draw a parallel between the pandemic and M&A activity, but I would draw a parallel between the market and financial stimulus and M&A activity, both Mm -hmm. in the sense of interest rates being low, capital being infused into the economy, a vaccine being a stimulant for a rebound economically and with jobs, innovation picking up, unemployment coming down, currency devaluation in the U.S., um, and public market activity. So not just debt financing being strong, but equity financing being strong, probably as strong as it's been in my lifetime, um, with not just SPACs, but IPOs and other forms of equity capital, all providing for a framework of activity levels that will lead to not just consolidation in the way that you're talking about it, which is a kind of scaling up, but also a deconstruction of companies where we're looking for more of an optimal portfolio. So mm-hmm. when you look at companies like AT&T or Viacom, CBS, or right. any of the kind of conglomerates, let's say like the old ITT Sheridans, where not every asset will be best situated in the same company structure, you can separate those more easily today in the public markets or with other strategic companies by realigning the asset mix. Everything's available. Right. Uh, and so there's a certain frenetic nature, I think, to deal making coming in 2021 that will be, especially in the first half of the year with a recovery kind of embedded with some tailwinds. I think it'll be maybe one of our busiest years. And I do think that the, 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 the like Sony is has has been breaking off small pieces, small collections of like you know Asian Asian TV channels that 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 can be, that were sought after by some investors that knew that business and have come in. And I think that that aspect, the fact that companies might be breaking off parts that people didn't even you know previously wouldn't have even thought would have been remotely for sale or would have been either too small or too embedded into larger operations. But I think that having seen that, my sense is that people feel like there's a lot of opportunity. But Cynthia, you, like, when, you, when you think about like deal flow, and I think you and I have had these conversations over the years, 
Um, and, I, and I appreciate our conversations because there's a narrative behind them versus like the deal of the moment that's breaking, uh, which we of course never talk about. Because you're always working on them and you can never, you can never, <laughs> you can never talk about them, which is so funny. All, most roads in media r- run through Lion Tree and that is not an exaggeration. I appreciate that, but I, I and I and I really love the the deal and the execution of the deal, and we obviously spent a lot of time cultivating to make sure those deals happen. But the narrative arc is 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 journalistically what where we align because I I find the story of what we're actually doing to be most interesting, and and there's there has to be a rationale for these deals. So, for example, hypothetically, let's say like regional sports networks, kind of a troubled segment of the media world right now right i mean is a melting ice cube like you know what what's what's the there there in an on-demand streaming world correct so so how do you so this is not like the high-flying growth segment of you know technology and digital that other parts of the world you know would talk about in terms of going public but regional sports networks has to get reworked and maybe become less regional maybe they should become more national in nature maybe we should recreate a regional sports network that's super regional or national, which looks a lot more like ESPN recultivated, right? So that's M&A in a different way. And those are the kinds of things that we think about a lot, which is, you know, how do you take segments of the media industry and reorient them towards a better narrative that has strategic value that unlocks upside and minimizes downside to create a more defensible asset mix? Mm-hmm. And and that is uh, that's where we align in terms of thinking about problems that have to get solved, not just deal making for deal making sake. Right. Do you what what do you, what is the impression from in- investors, especially people that haven't been as active in the core entertainment media space? I would think that investors that would be looking at this space might be a little cautious going, wow, this business needs to reinvent itself, you know, unpack itself and, you know, refashion in different ways. I'm going to stay out for a few, for a few years and let them figure it out. And then I'll come in. Or do you find that there is a lot of interest in a market that is going through a kind of a creative destruction right now? Oh, there's a, there's a great book called the powers that be uh, that you may have read. And it's like, uh, it's not a new book but it goes through like some of like the origins of the media companies. And like, did you know that the beginnings of the, uh, you know, the Paley's and the CBS was a uh-huh. star company. Uh, and did you know that the beginnings of time Warner was a, you know, car garage and funeral homes company. Um, Kenny uh, shoes, right. Um, car garages. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so like, um, you, you, these are great stories of entrepreneurialism well before the Amazons of the world and the Facebooks of the world and the Zuckerbergs and the Bezos is so that it's the Delta. It's the change that's interesting to invest in. Mm-hmm. It's the reinvention that's interesting to invest in, not the static. I always say stagnation leads to decay. Motion leads to value. So if you had the best company in the world that printed the same revenue every year, the way that equity markets work, the stock goes down because an equity trade is based on the future growth of a stock. So um, you have to have motion of growth and being able to reinvent more construction of value out of something than to keep it, even if it's a great company. So that creates a lot of reinvention and investment. Some of that works, some of that doesn't. But I think to invest in that risk appetite and that reinvention is, is the whole game. And I think that's what's most interesting about the media industry. It's always reinventing itself. It has to. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And my sense from your comment is that there is a lot of money. There's a lot of quote dry powder out there waiting to find the place to park itself or put it, you know, to, to put itself. If there's dry powder, there are companies looking for a quote unquote third leg to the stool where they're looking for a new business to buy or to do invest in um, that in a lot of cases, like I said, is audio or gaming driven. Um, there are also companies that are looking to expand in their core business in this day and age coming out of a pandemic you look at your portfolio and say, how much do we have in our business that's out of home versus insulated in home? Because obviously 2020 had a premium for being insulated in home versus out of home, like theme parks, et cetera. And should we reorient that a little bit? Should we have more gaming in home versus theme parks out of home? But you can't really react to a pandemic in my mind. I always say decisions that you make in a crisis probably are biased to the conservative side. And you really want to play long-term to a more normalized environment and not just have a diversified set of assets, but a, an asset set that will grow to the consumer uh, in all ways. And as that gets back to your first question is how do media companies position themselves? You want to have multiple products. You don't want to just have video streaming all the time. You know, what else are you offering the consumer? You know, I do, I do believe that people will come back to theaters. I do believe that there's an experiential model that people will long for. In the, in the time of the 1920s, in the Prohibition, we all longed for a bottle of alcohol. In the time of the pandemic, we're all longing for a gathering. Let's face it. I mean, it's much more interesting to be together. That's like a creative spark uh, to be together. The, we have to find safe ways to do that that are more forward-leaning versus backward-leaning. I don't think there's any activity that you could tell me about what happened in 1918 pre-pandemic that didn't resume post-1918 pandemic. So things resumed, right? It just maybe accelerated towards its normal outcomes, and models will get reworked. And digitization is here to stay in our day and age, and so we'll just accelerate that in areas like education, which probably should have happened anyway, in healthcare, in e-commerce, in mobile gaming, in other areas. That's great, but we're going to do those things, I think, anyway, at a faster pace, and I think we should just get on board with that. I think that um, I, I have seen a lot of commentary in the last couple of weeks about looking at, you know, that 1918, it was about a 24 month period. And then, hello, what did we enter? What did this this America enter into was the literal, the roaring 20s. So, you know, here's hoping uh, <laughs> bring back 2% needle beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, I, the 20s is one analogy. The 70s is another analogy, and not, not to be nostalgic, because I only say that because I think 19, the late 1960s, um, and I, I have to say I wasn't born then, <laughs> but the late 1960s seemed like it probably felt like a very heavy period of time. You, know, you had a war, you had the assassinations of MLK, JFK, and RFK all around the same time. Imagine how scary that must have felt. Yes. Um, and riots in the riots and, and Democratic and, National Convention erupted. Correct. So that was a very heavy period. What emerged was a very gritty 70s, a lightness of being, a creative um, evol- revolution that ended the decade in the 1970s, 1977, I think, with Star Wars, a tale of morality of, you know, good and evil and fantasy and sci-fi and you know, and so I think that was that like was, everyone got on board with the this this beautiful like creative like uh, fantasy world, 
that carried us for a while until like obviously the 80s, which was a, you know, high finance, you know, world and, you know, Reagan and everything else. So um, anyway, I just, I just think there's maybe a potential of, you know, we're both in New York, like a grittiness of creative, like uh, explosions of, uh, of output of what the culture will look like coming out of this. That's, I'm, I'm really interested in that from a media perspective. I wanted to talk about gaming because you mentioned you've mentioned gaming as a you know as as a force, and it's been interesting to me as long as I've been covering entertainment, gaming has always been just a little to the side of the core film and television, the core sort of Hollywood entertainment business. Do you ever do you see an Activision Blizzard or any one of the or an EA? Do you see ever a, a tighter a tighter consolidation with a traditional Hollywood company? We've seen it in Sony PlayStation, but as many times as they've tried, they've never, I don't think you've ever really seen an integration of PlayStation technology and movie technology or television. They've tried it in different one-offs, but never on a, it's never like on a level that it really stuck. Is there something about the gaming business that is just sort of necessarily arm's length from traditional film and TV? Yeah, I think that that's changed. I think the way you describe gaming as sort of a, an activity or an application of a platform, I think is a thing of the past. And I think it's a matter of having gotten to the scale uh, and the reach of the consumer um, that we're now at today makes an Activision or Take-Two or an EA kind of simulate a Netflix-like uh, customer profile. And then once you have that same kind of reach, then it's all about having the content. Uh, and once you have that reach and the content, you can create the same kind of ecosystem where you have a subscription model with a uh, with different types of content. That's both uh, you know gaming as well as video consumption. Similarly, Netflix with its reach and video content can become more of a gaming platform. And I think you're going to see those platforms kind of meld closer together. And I, and I think that's where I say gaming is more of the new internet. It's more of a platform that will have video, not just games inside, because it'll be a way of doing things virtually than that, that, that is kind of generational, um, but completely now part of the mainstream than when uh, I grew up, at least, uh, where it was more of an activity. And, uh, and I think that's, uh, I talk a lot about that in the letter because it's really, a, it's a metaverse. Uh, and we strongly believe that we've invested a lot in not just our gaming advisory and banking franchise and advising companies, but also in investing in the growth companies pre-IPO and pre-M&A. Uh, because I think there are social networks to gaming, like the Discords and the Robloxes of the world. Um, so it's not just the consoles uh, it's, uh, and the Scopelys of the world. So we're very active in the gaming business, even, even the ones that are private. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fortnite is as much a competitor uh, to Netflix as Amazon and, and Hulu for both time and also, as you said, just purely from a, a streaming platform. It will. If there, if, if there was a movie studio for sale, I would bet on um, a gaming company looking to buy it as much as a media company looking to buy it or a technology platform. Is the era of the bundle over? Has streaming com- has streaming made the, the traditional notion of the, the MVPT cable bundle that drove 25 years of earnings for the largest media companies. Is that bundle, is that bundle 
fraying to the point of not being able to really be be put back together within like a couple of years? Or do you think that 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 the impact of streaming has been maybe a little overstated on the on the content companies? Um, I, de- I definitely think we're in an a la carte world. Um, I don't think that's being widely acknowledged, but it certainly is uh, an a la carte world, which like anything direct to consumer or digital has um, risk of pricing coming lower for the content uh, companies unless packaged in a different way. So when you see Disney plus have proprietary or exclusive content on its own platform, that's another form of bundle. It's just a bundle in its own ecosystem, right? Or Warner with HBO max, that's its own bundle, right? It's just bundle at the exclusion of other content. Um, and over time, the next st- stage of that development will be the platform players will either have proprietary content that they own um, on their platform and that's it in a closed gar- in a closed garden, or they will open it and lease other content, which will give power to the platform long-term with the biggest reach uh, versus uh, content that's not owned by those platforms. And the content that's not owned by the platform will be leased uh, by, by many platforms and the long-term power will be in the distribution of my mind. What do you think is the runway to profitability for true profitability for a Disney plus or an HBO max given, you know, what they compared to what they would have been able to earn say five years ago in a more stable traditional MVPD environment. You, you're, you're really getting to the question of as a traditional model between content and distribution with the cable operators or the satellite operators breaks down in a bundle format and the content companies go directly to consumer, is there value leakage? Um, yes, uh, that's a much better way to say it. <laughs> I, 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 we live this every day. Or does the economic, does the economic break to the point where maybe it looks sexy in these business models, uh, direct to consumer and the whole plus side of what where these companies are going but it really doesn't hold up financially long-term to a shareholder. So the answer to that question is um, there's definitely economic risk to the content companies as they abandon the cable companies and go direct to the consumer unless two things happen. One, they have enough global scale to make up for the regional ecosystem that the cable operators own because the cable operators are really super regional. You know, there's no real national cable operator still. Right. Right. We have many in the U.S. still, you know, two, three, four, but not a national player. So if you could have global reach and Disney can reach a global customer base like Netflix, then you can become a global channel and make up some of those economics um, and maybe even supersede some of those economics with a loyal consumer base. Two, you have to have an investment in content that continues over time that allows the consumer to stay with your platform and allows Disney is this example, have to have pricing power over that consumer because you have to keep raising prices um, that will want the consumer to feel like they're getting more value for that, for that subscriber, um, for that subscriber cost. And then three, you have to bring the cable operators along with you. You you really, you really have to, in order to, to not cannibalize your existing business, you have to bring them along with you. That's that potentially could be done in, in a revenue splits, or working with the cable operators um, in different digital ways. And that's gonna be important. By and large, we're talking about the, the, the have and have nots. The Disney's of the world is the scale player. 
the other content companies may not be able to do that. Discovery could do that, um, but there are very few content companies that can actually have a global reach of the consumer. So as the bundle breaks, it definitely hurts the content industry overall, except for the top players, which must, must yield more consolidation among the content companies to have uh, more power and breadth around the global consumer base or have alignment with other platforms like technology platforms. Long term, if Disney, since Disney has put those numbers out there, Disney put out, um, I believe by 2025, that they're aiming for as many as 230 to 260 million subscribers to Disney Plus. Long term, if they get within that range internationally, they will not miss the $7 a month that they were getting per sub in the old world for ESPN. Like that, the, the business model is strong. And if they reach that scale in your, in your view, and I know you, your folks study this all day long, that they, if they reach that scale, that they will be, that they will be even better off than they were in the glory days of let's call it, you know, 10, 10, 12 years ago in the cable business. Yes. As long as those customers hold, because there's a concept around any consumer business that's called churn. And then there's another concept called price elasticity which means, you know, what is the price that you could, you know, raise your rates at without risking churn? And um, that is a hallmark of any distribution model, whether it's a wireless model or a cable model or a satellite model or a, you know, 5G model. Um, we've always had to measure these things over time. And so pricing is not, you know, inelastic. You, know, you have to really look at what you're offering the consumer to be able to raise prices. If you're in a broadband environment, that's about speed and capacity and access. You have to be able to raise prices. If you're in a video environment, you have to give them more content and you have to give them you know, more offerings, or maybe you have to offer more than just video. Like I said, gaming and audio or other things, more products and services. So you have to spend to offer more. That's what Netflix has been doing. And so you have to reach a point of critical mass to be able to have that marginal cost of spend uh, affordable on the platform. And that's only going to be there for very few players. Everyone else will have to align with other platforms or merge with other platforms to create an ecosystem of, you know, five or six or seven global competitors. Everyone else will be part of that. And that's a new ecosystem that, that basically simulates the old cable model. We've been talking about very traditional Hollywood. There's a lot going, there's a lot in the ether right now about big tech. And a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, talk about the threat of regulation, of, of antitrust concerns, and even bring, breaking up Facebook's, Google's, you know, the, the, the dominant duopolies in the market. Do you see a, do you think that there is a, is a real threat of, 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 there'll be a lot of noise about regulatory activity, but do you think that there is a, a real head of steam to put regulations around things like Facebook and or or um, uh, you know Google is under a lot of antitrust and you know market scrutiny right now for various various operations. Do you think that, especially with the Biden administration coming in, that we will see act real activity on the regulatory front beyond beyond hearings and you know noise that there'll be actual action? I think that Google and Facebook will be regulated. Um, I don't think Google and Facebook will be forced to break up the regulation. When I say regulated, I mean there's things like Section 230. I think that there is um, elements of restrictions on um, the 
privacy rules and the way that their different divisions work together. I think there's certainly regulation already coming out of the EU, even more stringent than in the US. Um, but by and large, I think these companies have been very innovative and should not be penalized by virtue of just being innovative platforms. Um, you know, and, and I don't think that any of them are too big for this environment because I think the access to capital for other companies are available to try to, you know, to be built as well. And, um, and I think that the way that the FTC, which really regulates Facebook and Amazon, right. And the way that the DOJ, which really regulates Amazon, I'm um, sorry, Google and Apple approaches, it will be very different. Uh, and I think that the FTC has moved faster with the Facebook lawsuit um, at this point. But I think over the next few years, um, we'll see much more uh, kind of headline noise than any kind of risk of breakups. But I think there is a real need for regulation around replicating what traditional media has had to deal with, which is like what you can say, what you can't say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that should approach some kind of um, standard with social networks as well as traditional media networks. That should be some sort of consistency there that I think you'll see over the next few years. How the Democratic administrations deal with M&A and tech um, remains to be seen. I mean, that also kind of goes into materiality. These companies are so big, whether they buy something that actually gets to a point of a shareholder vote or a regulatory vote uh, remains to be seen because a lot of these transactions are too small to even get to the kind of scrutiny. Um, but um, but uh, certainly Democratic institutions and, reg- and administrations, traditionally speaking, are more... Uh, more cautious with respect to M&A and we'll have to be uh, cognizant of that. That's a big risk factor for all of us. Do you think that the, that the, that the sense of, you know, that there's going to be some governmental activity around big tech, has that made media a little more attractive for investors that there's, there's big issues that big tech is going to have to deal with. Is that, is that making media look a little more attractive? I mean, yes. uh, That in the sense that media is not in, in the eye of the regulators, but no, in the sense of if we're expecting media to be acquired by the tech companies. <laughs> right. So um, um, I think it's an intertwined ecosystem at this point. Um, and um, I think there's a lot of power that the, that the tech companies have in terms of the reach of the consumer. Um, but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, respect that the media companies should get in terms of being able to really produce great content. And I think the relationship with the talent is hard to replicate. Um, but, uh, but ultimately we'll have to be aligned with the platforms. I think the, the getting the alignment between the content production, the talent and the innovation with these economic models is where the complexity sits. The, the, um, I was saying to you earlier that, um, the relationship between talent and economic models and innovation in the media industry is so nuanced and has to be respected in a way that's not like any other industry where you can just innovate your way through economic models and say, we're now going digital, we're going to e-commerce and all just makes sense because talent has a lot of power in this ecosystem that we live in. And they should have a lot of power because the, the brands or the creative engine that makes media special um, has cash flow streams attached to them. They're not just, um, you know, voices or artists. They have cash flow streams. And maybe they have more power than the corporations in a lot of ways. And if you disenfranchise the talent, you kind of lose the engine of what makes the media industry special. 
So that, that relationship has to get cultivated in a similar way as now, you know, content and distribution has found its harmony and marriage in a traditional, you know, cable and cable network ecosystem. REA, what is your boldest prediction for 2021? Well, it's a great question because um, everything about this industry has an element of boldness to it. But let me see if I could um, stretch my thinking for your podcast a little bit. Um, uh, for I'll do it for 2021 plus okay. in the uh, the vein of uh, of the letter and how we're thinking about things. So the branding uh, of the industry. Yeah, exactly. Um, so a few things: music, concerts, and festivals will come back faster than movies. Uh, from your lips. The uh, the sports industry will be completely realigned and adjusted. And the Buffalo Bills will win the Super Bowl. Good defense. A major university will go digital as a long-term strategy to expand its reach and innovation, fully virtual. Intriguing. People are going to travel to space and tourism of all kinds will take off in the coming year. And the next U.S. president will be a woman, finally. Wow. All exciting things to look forward to in 2021 plus. REA, thank you so much for your time. Always a fascinating conversation with you. Thanks so much, Cynthia. Have a great time. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business. And please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from listeners. Listeners.